Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up those Bibles to John chapter 12. It's the first time in over three months that we are, as a church, opening up our Bibles to something other than Exodus, um, as it is Palm Sunday, and we kind of maintain our plan to take a short break from our Exodus series now for Holy Week. And uh, I'd imagine you'd agree with me here that um, if we were given the choice of how to spend Holy Week together, none of us would have chose this and being apart. Um, but I'll tell you what, I'm just trusting in God's providence in this. Um, and I've been praying, I would say, even more fervently than I normally do on uh, a Holy Week in any given year, that this would be the year that God uses to bring revival uh, for his name's sake. I mean, just I, I was kind of just thinking about this. Um, as you kind of read your Bible, would, wouldn't it be so like God to use the year that we would be tempted to say, oh man, it's, it's our lost year for Easter because we can't gather as a church, that we're, we're losing Easter now in 2020. Wouldn't it be so like God to use this year to be the year that he reveals himself more than ever before? Wouldn't it be something for the world to see, uh, maybe now more than ever, that the church is not the church because of its um, impressive programs or its special music or its nice buildings and talented people, but, but the church is the church because Jesus has risen from the grave and he is still alive today and he is still the head of the body of Christ as we are scattered across the globe. Wouldn't it be so like God to use this year to be a great year. All right, I'm way too worked up already in the introduction, but um, just trust in him for it. Pray that you would pray along with me for that in this upcoming week. And, and, and so now, um, while scattered across our homes, um, we have the opportunity to gather around God's word together. And it's our opportunity in the midst of what is surely a painful time, um, a confusing time to um, just withdraw from the current moment and lean into God's truth together. And I just want to remind you as we get going that this passage in John was here before COVID-19 began. And by digging into it, I trust that we will be refreshed, we will be renewed, we will be re-strengthened together to return back to the current day with a stronger faith. And um, just let's be clear on that, right? What we're doing here now, this is not an escape. This is a withdrawal, and it's a big difference. You see, an escape makes us forget, but a withdrawal helps us to remember Okay, so you watching Netflix, that's an escape. But us digging into the Word of God together, that is a healthy withdrawal. So we're, here we are on Palm Sunday. Uh, this is a, an event, a famous event of Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Um, all four Gospels tell this story. Um, and, uh, and yet John's account of it is way different than the other three. John's account is way different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke's accounts because the, the other three kind of give you the big picture overview of what is happening. 
Um, it's relatively brief. It gives you all kind of, um, again, just the big pieces of what is happening. Um, but John gives us the on-the-ground dialogue of what is actually happening here. Uh, it, so it's the same event, but a far different perspective. It's one of the many reasons why it's great having four different Gospels, four different portraits of Jesus' life. Um, so I, I was thinking about that. It, it's kind of like this, right? The, the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, their account of the triumphal entry is like sitting in the upper deck in the cheap seats of Yankee Stadium, right? You, you see the big picture. Uh, the, the, these are the seats that if I'm buying the tickets, this is where I'm sitting, right? Okay, so um, you, you kind of see the overview of all that's kind of happening. But John's account, John's account is like the time a couple years ago that my brother and I were given tickets to sit in the two seats right next to the dugout at Yankee Stadium. You know, the, the seats where you try and play it cool, that like you've been here before and everybody immediately sees you and goes like, oh man, this guy's never been here before, right? They're just like little kids all giddy, just want to take it all in, looking all around, taking pictures like you are a first timer in these seats and probably a last timer. Um, but like, it, it's just, you in those seats, you hear conversations, you're on the ground, you're kind of hearing the dialogue between players and between coaches. And, and so he, here it is, right? Uh, whether you're in the cheap seats or you're in the first row, it's, it's, it's the same game, same stadium, same event you're all watching, but a totally different experience and perspective. John's account of the triumphal entry is like sitting next to the dugout. And it's nothing short of fascinating, partly because John also provides the details leading up to this moment that none of the other gospel writers do. So I, I want to kind of just kind of set the scene for John chapter 12. I want to set the scene for what we know as Palm Sunday. Um, Jesus has been active in his earthly ministry by this point for about three years, okay? So this is three years of authoritative teaching, of divine healings, of driving out demonic powers, um, all the while upending the Jewish ruling class and gaining this large following of Jewish people. And in John 11, Jesus performs his biggest miracle to date. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. It's a miracle where after the fact, he would give his seventh and final I am statement in the Gospel of John, that I am the resurrection and the life. And then Lazarus walks out of the tomb. And, and, and here's the kicker with this miracle. A lot of people saw this. And the crowd kind of went from here, as you can imagine. They started telling everybody they know, right? This is the original social media, right? Word of mouth, just going and telling people of what they've seen and what they've heard. Well, this ruling class of Jews, Pharisees and Sadducees, the chief priests, they catch wind of this miracle and they just go into panic mode. And they kind of huddle around and they're saying like, all right, um, if we just kind of let this go, if we just don't really do anything to stop this, he's just going to keep performing these miraculous signs and everyone's just going to keep following him. They're not going to be following us. And, and then the Romans are going to catch wind of this and they're going to get nervous and they're just going to come in and shut us all down. And you notice in 
reading John 11, they, they don't even deny Jesus' power. They don't even deny the fact that He really is carrying out these signs. And, and they never seem to just slow down and consider, um, maybe this guy is sent from God. Maybe He is who He says He is. They never even consider it. They refuse to believe. By the way, does that remind you of someone? A certain leader in ancient Egypt that we might have been reading about recently. I mean, consider the parallels. You have um, between Pharaoh and the Pharisees, you have people in power who feel their control threatened, feel their reign over the people threatened, and their hearts are hardened, and they refuse to humble themselves. They refuse to believe the clear signs all around them. They refuse to listen to the repeated warnings to stop leading God's people astray. And so they decide in John 11, all right, Jesus, we, we kind of knew things were heading this direction, but he's got to go, okay? We, we, we got to be done with this guy. This miracle is the final straw. We got to find him. We got to kill him. And then the week before the Passover, they hear, hey, Jesus is back in Bethany, which is the village just outside of Jerusalem where Lazarus and his sisters live. And so the chief priests come up with a plan. They plan to go check things out to not only um, grab Jesus and arrest Jesus, but that's not all. If you read in the beginning of John 12, you know what else they plan? They want to put Lazarus to death. Because everyone was talking about him and how he was dead, and now days later he was raised from the dead. And so if we kill Lazarus, well then we can just go tell everybody it was a hoax and, and people won't follow Jesus. I mean, this is as evil, as hard-hearted as you can get. And the scary thing is, is that it's from the very people who claim to be the closest to God. It's coming from the very people who are the most religiously impressive to others. So, thank you, John, for giving us all the details of what is happening leading up to this triumphal entry. Um, all the details of this high-flying drama. Man, I'm just telling you, I'm going to tell you over and over again, the Bible is far more interesting, far more captivating than many of you know, okay? So I'm just telling you, all right? Um, just put down the Netflix remote and pick up your Bible, okay? I'm just saying, a little less Tiger King, a little more Jesus, all right? That's good for us all. So I know that was a big setup, but I think the context matters. And that brings us to John 12. And we're going to start by reading verses 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it, as, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him and when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As we walk through this passage, I want to kind of look at the different aspects of a king and how it kind of evolves throughout this passage. So first, the popular reception of a king. One of the hallmark characteristics of Palm Sunday, as we traditionally know it and celebrate it, aside from the palms, is the size of the crowd that was there that day. Um, When it comes to just sheer popularity, Jesus is at the peak of his powers at this point in his ministry. This crowd is mostly, um, but not exclusively, Jews, as we'll see in a bit. And they are quoting Psalm 118. They are shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! They are deeming Jesus the King of Israel. And John tells us the reason the crowd is here, again, is because of the sign he did in raising Lazarus from the dead. This was enough to convince them that he is the king that they have been waiting for as a nation. And the irony, and as we'll see, there is so much irony in this passage, is that they are right, yet totally misguided. You see, Jesus is the king of Israel. He is the one that Psalm 118 is speaking of. He is coming in the name of the Lord. But he's not the kind of king they were expecting. Jesus is coming to usher in the upside down kingdom, the kingdom that upends the kingdoms of the world. He's not coming to be the next political leader over Israel to free them from the Romans like everybody was hoping. And his entrance is the first indication that this, okay, this is a little bit different, right? We're shouting the king, we're welcoming the king, but now this looks a little bit different because when political leaders throughout the Roman Empire entered into a city, they came accompanied with an army. And the leader was always mounted on a white horse. This was the traditional entrance into a city for a leader. Jesus, on the other hand, comes with no army. And he comes mounted on a donkey. He comes in humble, not prideful. He comes not to conquer by taking, but to conquer by giving. And then John gives us, like he often does in his gospel, a little kind of editorial comment here. He's speaking honestly about the disciples, which included himself. And he just says that his own disciples didn't, really realize what was happening here. They couldn't see what God was doing in the moment. It wasn't until after he died, rose again, and ascended to heaven that they would look back at this moment and understand. So just as a little aside, I'm so thankful for that little editorial comment by John that almost seems like a throwaway comment because how true is this In our lives, I mean, especially right now, when we just can't see it, when we just know, we're just not fully understanding or comprehending what God is doing. 
when we're just confused as, as to what is happening, even in those moments, we can trust that everything will make sense in hindsight. And we can trust Him. We can trust Him even we don't know, because we know that He is working. And the Pharisees are standing by, and they're watching this, and they're watching the chanting and the crowds, and they are hating what they see, and, and they are hating what they hear, and they give this just kind of like sore loser, weak response to the crowd, right? Like in their minds, they're exaggerating. They're like, hey, good for you guys that you're celebrating this guy, but look around. You're not gaining anything. The whole world is after him. Right? And they're kind of trying to play it cool on the outside, but inwardly, they're just, it's killing them. And little do they know that that comment that they think is an exaggeration, that the whole world has gone after him, is far truer than they would ever imagine. Let's keep going. Verses 20 to 23. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. We're actually going to stop there at verse 22. That verse 20, it's a much bigger deal in the Gospel of John than we um, realize in just reading this section because it's the first time in the Gospel that Jesus shows that his ministry is not just to the Jews, but to the entire world. So when the Pharisees just sarcastically said, hey, the whole world is after them, again, far truer than they knew. And we see the immediate segue to the Greeks wanting to be in his presence. So this is, number two, the desired presence of a king. The word Greeks here refers to Gentiles, right? So it's not necessarily they were from Greece, but it means it's non-Jews who are in Jerusalem to see, to witness, to maybe partake in the Passover feast. Um, the city of Jerusalem was um, outside of Passover week was just about 100,000, but during Passover, it would swell to over 1 million people. And the Greeks are here, and they're seeing what everybody else is seeing, and they're hearing what everybody else is hearing, and they are intrigued by Jesus. And then we're not even exactly sure how, but they get to Philip, one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples, and they say this simple line, that they did not know would be etched forever in the Word of God. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What a line. We wish to see Jesus. We're intrigued by this. All this attention, we want to be in His presence. Philip, can we meet Him? The Greeks just like the Jews, are correct in their interest in Jesus and their desired presence of a king, but they are totally misguided as well. Because the desire to see him is coming from a place of wanting to be associated with a king, right? It pays to be in with famous, powerful people, isn't it? Like, can't we resonate with that on a certain level? 
how often when we're just with people that we'll kind of name drop whenever we can, if we've been around someone or we know someone or we have a connection with somebody who knows a, uh, somebody who everyone considers famous, right? So this is ancient celebrity culture happening in John 12 before celebrity was even a word. Because knowing and seeing and being associated with famous people, doesn't that make us look good? When we talk about it to others, like, I'm just sure, and I don't think we need to feel guilty about this because I think I'm in the same boat, but if I'm sure, if I were to ask you, hey, have you ever had an interaction with a celebrity? I, I just don't think if it's happened, it would take too long for you to remember. Like those memories are vivid in our minds, right? We, we've told the story a thousand times, haven't we? And so the Jews are chanting, Hosanna, the king of Israel. And the Greeks are watching, and they want to see Jesus. So it's a lot of attention on this king. How's he going to respond? Here's where the text turns. Follow along. We're going to read now. Pick it up at verse 23 and read to 26. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Number three, the unexpected words of a king. Here's the heartbeat of this passage. Here's what makes John's account so valuable. Here's the best part of sitting next to the dugout at a game. You hear the dialogue. And so dial in here, focus here. It's not immediately clear who all he's talking to, but it appears it's not just his disciples. It appears there's also some of the Jewish crowd, some of the Greek crowd, some um, Pharisee naysayers. Okay, so it's a mixed audience he's talking to. A mixed audience, but Jesus does not mix his words. These unexpected words of a king. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You can almost imagine his disciples and everyone being like, huh? Wait, wait, Jesus, no, 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 you don't understand. They're, ch- they're chanting your name. Jesus, all these people from foreign nations, they want to they see you. They want to be with you. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. The momentum has shifted. What are you talking about? Jesus explains, for those who love your life, you will lose it. But whoever hates his life will keep it. It'll bear fruit. It'll be eternal. Again, I have to imagine at this point, now just total blank stares. No questions. Jesus is turning their kingdom upside down right before their eyes. 
This is not the rah-rah speech they were expecting from a political leader. This doesn't smell like the talk of victory and overtaking and freeing. And so I imagine, again, he's looking at their blank stares. And now he says it a third way. If you want to serve me, you must follow me in this loss of life in order to gain eternal life. If, if one serves me in this way, if one follows me on this path, then the Father will honor him. You want to know the heartbeat of Holy Week? You want to get to the center of Christian belief? You want to get to the core of the gospel? It's right here. Here's the thesis of the kingdom of God. If you love your life, you'll end up losing it. But if you hate your life, you'll keep it. It's unexpected words. Even maybe now that seems like a little too out there, a little too radical. But what Jesus is saying is that this is the difference between the me-centered life versus the Christ-centered life. When Jesus speaks of those who love their life, what he means is those who see their own comfort, their own gain, their own safety, their own security as primary importance to them, as the center of everything for them. That's the me-centered life, where we see everything and we hear everything through the lenses of, what will this do to benefit me? The Jewish crowd thought, how can Jesus benefit me and free me from the Roman rule? The Greek crowd thought, how can seeing and being associated with Jesus benefit me? How can that make me look good? How can that increase my safety and power and security? How can that give me privilege? And the Pharisees even thought all along, what could Jesus do for me? And their answer is nothing. He does nothing good for me. And so he needs to go. But in all three cases, it's the me-centered life where their first, most primary lens through which they view everything, again, is, what does this mean for me? How does this benefit me? And Jesus says, if you live that way, if you love yourself in that way, then ultimately you'll get what you want. At the end of the day, it'll just be you, and you'll be alone. But Jesus said, there is another path. There's a path that leads to eternal life. The path is the one you take when you hate your life. And, and obviously, he's speaking in bold terms here. He's catching their attention. But what he means by hating your life 
is that you consider the life of following Jesus as primary and you hold your lives cheap for the sake of serving and following Jesus. Right? So it's not a literal hatred of self. It's saying, I'm taking myself off the throne and I'm putting Christ in the center. I'm putting Him on the throne and I'm reordering my loves. This is what it is to hate your life. This is the Christ-centered life where the lens through which we view everything is not my comfort, is not my security. Where we are willing to take risks, where we are willing to do the hard thing to live for something outside of ourselves. And this is the life that produces fruit. This is the life that serves God and loves others. And this is the life that produces joy, right? If you remember back from last fall in our um, Philippians series, I said it's corny, but you'll probably remember it. That when you think of the word joy, what is true joy? It gives you the acronym, Jesus, others, you. That's the recipe. That's the order of joy. And this is the path that Jesus is talking about. And the problem is, is that a sinful nature that we are all born with, it keeps us under the weight of slavery. As Martin Luther calls it, the bondage of the will, where we are drawn and compelled to the me-centered life. This is what sin does. All sin can be boiled down to the me-centered life. It puts ourselves on the throne. And everything in this world is either a benefit to me or a threat to me. Either is a benefit to my happiness, control, and power, or it's a threat to my happiness, control, and power. And that is a lonely existence. And so Jesus will continue talking because we are powerless to reverse this curse on our own. We can't will ourselves out of slavery. We can't will ourselves out of the me-centered life. We need to be delivered from it. And that's where Jesus goes next. Let's read verses 27 to 33. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Next, we see the predicted death of a king. This is brilliant teaching by Jesus. I I mean, he had to know that everyone who just heard what he had just said about hating your life and losing your life would be just like deer in headlights, right? That they can't even fathom a life outside the me-centered lens. And then so he models the life he wants them to live. 
by sharing what will happen to him. That his purpose in coming to the world was not to do what was best for him. He's not living a life that is out for his own comfort and his own well-being. He's not acting in accordance with his own flesh, which is why he's saying, my soul is troubled here because I'm not following the path just for myself. But he's able to continue on the path he's on even with a troubled soul because his primary aim is to glorify the Father. The glory of God is the motivation and primary purpose of Jesus' life. It is why he is even here. It's why he was born in a stable to a virgin mother. It's why he teaches. It's why he heals. It's why he drives out evil. It's why he calls out the Pharisees to glorify the name of God. And his point is proven when the Father's voice answers him. And do you notice what everyone else said about that voice? Everyone else interprets that through the me-centered lens. Some say it was thunder. Others say it was the voice of an angel. And everyone sees Jesus, and he sees, and they see his signs, and they hear his teaching, and all the while they just think of themselves. This was Pharaoh's problem in Egypt. It is their problem here in Jerusalem. And it is the problem of those today who do not believe. And it's why Jesus has come to break the curse of the me-centered life. Which is why he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All people, meaning all kinds of people. All kinds of people will see Jesus high and lifted up. The King of Israel, the one who's come in the name of the Lord, he will be dying the death we deserve so that we may have the hope of eternal life. It's not just Jews. It's not just Greeks. It is all kinds of people from all kinds of places in the world. And this is the hope of Holy Week. That Jesus came willingly with joy set before him to endure the cross and to die for the sin of those who sent him there. Let's finish with the last couple verses of chapter 12. Or of this passage, we'll go verses 34 to 36. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Finally, we see the clear invitation of the king. He says these things. Finally, the crowd musters some form of a response. It's not clear who, again, is speaking here, whether it's his disciples or the Jewish crowd or the Greeks or the Pharisees or maybe a little bit of everybody. 
Maybe this question that they ask stands for them all because they're all misguided in different ways. But as one pastor once said, it doesn't matter if you're drowning five feet from the dock or 500 feet from the dock, the result is the same. And you notice what they appeal to? They appeal to their own religious knowledge. Hey, we know the law. We know the scriptures of old. We memorize those texts. It shows the, the biggest danger in this world is thinking that knowledge about God equals to belief in God. That since someone can tell you about Jesus, about Holy Week, about the meaning of the cross, about the gospel, that they think because they know those things, it means they are saved and walking in the light. This is the scariest thing of all, especially for those of us who are used to church and a life in church, is that it's possible to treat Jesus and Christianity solely through the me-centered lens. What does this mean for me? How will this help me? How will this help my health, my finances, my happiness, my relationships? And all the while we live a, what we think is a Christian life only thinking about ourselves and it has nothing to do with the glory of God, just the glory of self. And so when they ask, what do you mean by all that? We know all that. We know the answers. What do you mean? It's to this Jesus says, the light is here a little longer. Referring, obviously, to himself. And the one who walks in darkness doesn't know where they're going. They have no sense of direction. And he invites them to believe in the light. To believe in him. To become a son of light is to die to self. It's to repent of living life through the me-centered lens. To freely admit that we are under the bondage of sin and that we need to be delivered and saved by the one who is high and lifted up on the cross on our behalf. This is the life that transforms this is the life where we take ourselves from the throne and we rightly place Christ back on it. This is how we can follow Him. This is how we can follow in His footsteps. This is how we can endure lives that even include suffering with joy. I, I mean, even now, even in this moment we're in, how vital is this? Because when one suffers in a me-centered life, there's nothing good about it. There's nothing redemptive about it. It's just terrible because we're suffering. There's no point. But when we suffer in a Christ-centered life, it has purpose. We're sustained by God. And we can even rejoice in our sufferings because we know they will not be wasted and God will be glorified. Following Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. It's like a death, you see, but a death that bears fruit. It's like hating your life, you see, but in such a way that you can keep it. 
It's like walking in the light, you see, so that you won't remain in darkness. The final thing I want you to hear me say is maybe this is churning in you, maybe your head is spinning with this, trying to think about what this means. I just want you to hear me say that Jesus is not withholding anything from you. When he invites you to believe in him, he's not robbing you of anything. He's not taking anything away from you that you need. He's not withholding anything from you. He is for you. He is for your joy. And in this way, he is lifting your eyes to him and inviting you to follow him. Church, don't waste your Holy Week. On this first day of the week, Jesus is telling you. And as the week unfolds, he'll be showing you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, especially the words that um, can be difficult to understand. And yet, Lord, we just pray that with our eyes fixed on you, Lord, that you would speak to our souls, Lord, that you have made us to glorify your name. You have made us to deny ourselves, to live for you, serve you, and follow you. This is what will bring glory to your name. This is what will bring a positive impact to this world. And this is what will produce joy in us, Lord. Give us the faith to lean into that truth to be strengthened and renewed by it. And I pray that this upcoming week, Lord, it might be a difficult week in many ways, but I pray that this week your name would be glorified. I pray this week that our faith would be sustained. And I pray that this week of all weeks, you might draw all people to yourself. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.